Good morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, you probably already have turned to Exodus chapter 27. We continue our journey through the book of Exodus, and it's kind of winding down if you think about it. I don't know if you've read ahead, but you know Exodus ends with the tabernacle. So as we study through the tabernacle, um, you basically come to these sections where God gives the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. There's a little bit of narrative in between, and then the rest of Exodus is about the faithfulness of Moses to instruct the people to build the tabernacle, and the book of Exodus ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle, and that's where Exodus ends, and then it picks up with Leviticus, which kind of gives more perspective about the law and how the tabernacle is used. The priesthood is introduced to us in the book of Leviticus and how they function as intermediaries between the people of God and God himself. So we're coming down to the end of this, and I know it's been this long journey. If you think about it, probably it was about a year ago we were still in the 10 plagues. So now we are kind of of coming towards the end of this study. And it's the one that you really want to pay attention to because whenever the scripture slows down and starts to tell you something, that's when you need to slow down and, and pay attention because there's no wasted details in scripture. So when God gives details, we, we stop and we look and we ask ourselves questions. Um, because if you don't, what happens is you get in this routine, and that routine can make you a religious person, and I mean that in a negative way. What I mean is, well, think about it this way. What have you come here today for? Why are you really here? I mean, is it, are you here because you really expect and anticipate that God will speak to you? That God, the God of the universe, will use his word to instruct you in in some way, some some form or fashion. Maybe it isn't like this absolutely revolutionary concept that you've never ever heard before. But maybe it's something that God says and and it's small but it's directive. Because your life maybe is starting to tail off this way. And then God reveals to you something that will correct it just a little bit. But it keeps you on that straight and narrow. So I want to ask you again, why are you here and what do you anticipate to hear? Not from me, not not some history lesson, but the God of the universe wants to speak to you because he loves you, because he has a plan for you and he wants to direct you towards that plan because that plan is the full realization and benefit of a relationship with him, which is what he wants you to gain from that relationship. So as we approach the text today, let's continue to remember that God has something for us. Now, as we've gone through the tabernacle and the study of the tabernacle, uh, I'm sure you've begun to picture in your mind what it looks like. But I, I want to repeat these things just because, number one, we have new people that are joining us all the time who may not have the benefit of what we've said previously. But also, it's a good reminder to us about what we're looking at and what we're talking about and where these things are stationed. Okay? So um, what we have, go to the first slide that has a picture of the white fence. If you remember, this is kind of the white fence. We're not going to talk about this until next week. So we'll talk about the poles of acacia wood, the silver and the bronze that are a part of that. Um, But the fence, I want you to picture that everybody is camped around the tabernacle. And the tents in that day and time are not like the tents that we have because they didn't have like things like Kevlar and waterproof fabrics. So what they used to make something waterproof were animal skins. So you can imagine as you look through the camp that everything is brown or dark because that's what they used to cover their tents with. It was animal skins and they're typically very dark in nature. 
Um, but then there is this big white fence in the middle of it. And then inside of that is the tabernacle and where God resides. This fence is a reminder of God's holiness. And it was a constant reminder to them of what separated them from God. Because they couldn't go any further into the, the tabernacle without a sacrifice. Now, one thing we know about the brazen altar is that was the first thing that you see. That's what we're talking about today. But I don't know if you know this, but I, I just wanted to make sure that you understood it because it's a powerful illustration. And that is, you know, we think of them taking the animals in and maybe um, sacrificing them in the side. But what Leviticus tells us is that they would literally cut the throat of the animal at the gate before they ever entered into the courtyard. And then they would proceed further. The priest would be there. He would oversee it. The, the worshiper was the participant in the killing of the animal. The priest would then help them to separate the pieces, wash them appropriately, remove the skin, and then place the things that went on to the altar. And then depending on what sacrifice it was, there's five of them that are mentioned at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and each one of them is a little bit different. But so depending on which sacrifice it was, he would help them to put the things that went on the altar there and take away the things that didn't go on the altar. So all of that is taking place. But I think it's a strong picture that you can't enter in without that substitute, without that sacrifice. And, and that happens before you walk into the courtyard. So again, this white fence is a reminder of the holiness of God. But not only is it the holiness of God, it's also a reminder to them of what separates them from this holy God. It is the darkness of all of that encampment and then highlighted there is this big white fence that would just stand out glaringly in the desert like that. And it was this constant reminder of where they fall short. It was a constant reminder to them of who God was and who they were. Now, one thing we also know about the tabernacle is that there's basically these three sections. You have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and then you have the Holy of Holies. Okay, so there's three sections to that. And what we've talked about is that those three sections are very powerful when we begin to think about salvation as a whole. So go ahead to that next slide that has those three sections. You can see there's an entrance which is always on the east side. So no matter where they encamp, remember the tabernacle is this, this makeshift temple, if you will, while they're wandering around in the wilderness. So it's made to be transported as they move and wander through the wilderness. So as they do, and, and really, honestly, if you think about it, even in the promised land, because this is their standard of worship for 500 years. They only spend 40 years of that in the wilderness. So for another 450 years, this is still what they used. It was still this temporary before Solomon actually builds the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so again, when you think about that, um, they, they're moving this around. It's made to be transported. These three sections that it breaks down into really can be thought of as a picture of salvation. So as the gate always points to the east, no matter where they are, it always points to the east. When you enter into it, there's only one way in and one way out, and that's through that gate. Once you enter into it, the first thing you see is what we're talking about today, which is the brazen altar. That's where the sacrifice is made. The second thing you see is the laver, which is right there past the brazen altar, the bronze laver. This is where the priest would wash himself before walking into the holy place. 
Now, inside the holy place, we've already talked about a couple of things that we have in there. To the left is the lampstand. To the right is the table of showbread. In front of you would be the altar of incense. We haven't talked about that one yet. It's coming up a little later. And then the big veil that would be there with the picture of the cherubim who are looking down and facing each other. Okay. Then beyond that is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would go only once a year, only on God's invitation, which is the Day of Atonement, and only with a sacrifice. Okay? And he would go in there more than one time offering a sacrifice for himself, for the tribe of Levi, and for the nation as a whole. Uh, that was the only day that he ever walked in there. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where you literally see the angels made of gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant seated there on the mercy seat, looking down at the mercy seat itself. Again, this is the throne room of God. This is where the presence of God resided. Okay, so this is God's place. This is God's residence as he lives among his people. What you see there is actually a pattern of our salvation. Um, we talked about this before, but just to kind of emphasize it, I don't know if you've, as you've read through scripture, if it's ever been confusing to you that our salvation is talked about in three different tenses. It says that you have been saved as if it's already happened. And then there's other times where it says you're being saved as if it's something that's in the process of happening but hasn't happened yet. And then there's these verses that talk about you will be saved off in the distance and talks about it almost like it hasn't even started yet, that it's something that happens way off in the distance. And, and so it almost seems like contradictory. Well, am I saved or am I not saved? And if I'm in the process of being saved, what do I need to do to make sure that I make it to the end? Now, that's not the confusion of it. It's actually the pattern that God has designed because there are three processes to salvation and it's justification, sanctification, Glorification is the big theological words that we use for that. Justification is the mitigation of the consequences of sin. Sanctification is the mitigation of the practice of sin. And glorification is the mitigation of the presence of sin. Do you see the difference in that? So one of them is saved from the consequences of, which is eternal death. The other one is saved from the practice of sin, which is what we are constantly in the process of doing. Even though we are saved and we know that we are saved through Jesus, we still struggle with temptation and we struggle with sin in this world and in our life. So we're learning this constant learning about how to be more like Christ. And the Holy Spirit is instructing us and convicting us and empowering us to become more like Christ. And we are learning in that process to trust God more, to trust the Holy Spirit, to learn to hear the voice of God when he speaks to us. I'm not talking about audible. I'm talking about that still, small voice that we hear inside. And we know that that's God instructing us, telling us to do something or not to do something. So there's this process of learning not to practice sin. But then the scripture says that one day we will see him face to face. We will know in full just as we have been fully known. And when we get to that place, there is no more sin. The, the, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren has been cast into the lake of fire and all of God's enemies have been judged and sent away. And all there is, is us, the people of God in the presence of God for eternity. That is the perfection of that. That is the absence of sin completely. Okay. So that is glorification. You actually see all three of those here with the tabernacle. So as early as the book of Exodus, you see this pattern that God has sustained for our salvation. What is it? Well, the first part is there's only one way in. That's the gate. There's only one way to salvation. The very next thing is there has to be a sacrifice that mitigates the consequences of sin. So there has to be a substitute. An innocent has to take the place of the guilty. 
Okay? Then the next thing is the washing. So we have to wash ourselves before entering into. So that's a picture of repentance and baptism. Peter even says this, repent and be baptized, all of you. Now, it's not meaning that baptism is necessary for salvation, but baptism is a part of that initial part of our salvation. In other words, this is a picture of the, the, the sacrifice of Christ is washing us clean of all the guilt of sin. So we see both of those in the courtyard. But as you exit the courtyard, you enter into the holy place. Now, inside the holy place, you have the lampstand, and you have the table of showbread, and you have in front of you the altar of incense. And without going into a lot of detail, because we've already talked about some, and the other we will save for future, you have a picture of the Word of God, you have the picture of the communion of the people of God, and you have a picture of prayers that are offered before God. Okay? So that's a picture of the church, if you think about it. Or if you want to think about it in salvific terms, it's a picture of our sanctification. We are learning from the Word of God. We are getting to know God through prayer and intercession and praying. And we're learning to trust Him more and it's growing our faith. And we are learning to commune with God and to commune with the people of God all together. So it's not just us being with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's us being with brothers and sisters of Christ in the presence of God. Both of them are related relationships that we are growing and learning to depend on and we are learning to have faith in, okay? Our faith is being grown. Uh, we are being held accountable. We are being pushed and encouraged in the directions of Christ through those entities. And then glorification is the picture of being in the presence of God. And that's when we are there, angels all around, we are aware, and it's this beautiful picture of what God has intended for us. So those are the three sections that you have as early as the tabernacle. So what it reminds us of and why this is important is to remember that the cross was not plan B. The cross was not because, well, these people are never going to follow the law, so I've got to come up with some other way to make them right. No, right with the giving of the law is a picture of exactly what God intended to do to save his people. There has to be a substitute. So this was a foreshadowing. The writer of Hebrews even talks about that. We have, you know, so many times gone back to chapters 9 and 10 and 11 of Hebrews because this is where he begins to highlight many of these features from Exodus. And he says that this is what God intended, that these were shadows of something that he was going to fulfill more perfectly with the coming of the Messiah or or specifically Jesus. So the tabernacle is a picture of God's salvation. We even see it in the elements that are used. Everything in the courtyard, which we're talking about that process of justification, everything's, everything is bronze. Okay? But when you move into the tabernacle, into the holy place and the holy of holies, everything is gold. Why? Because that speaks of deity. It speaks of approaching God. Everything on the outside is a picture of humanity. So bronze is a representation of humanity. Gold is a, a, a representation of deity or royalty. And King Jesus or King God, if you want to think about it in that way, because the throne room is what you are approaching in the holy of holies. So all of these things work to our benefit, to help us understand God's intentions, okay? So the tabernacle is a picture of our salvation. But not only is it a picture of our salvation, if you think about it, it's actually a picture of the Messiah as well. There are these things in the New Testament, whenever you read them, they sound really good, and, and we remember them because they sound good, and they, they're easy. There's these, like, these little um, tidbits of, of sentences or phrases that stick to our minds, and we remember these. After hearing them even one time, we will remember them, because we would say, Jesus is the way, the 
and the, yeah. So think about that in relation to the courtyard. Jesus is the way. There's only one way in, the gate. He is the truth, which is what the, the holy place is all about, the word of God. Prayers, understanding who God is, communion of God. This is where we learn and pursue the truth of God. And he is the life, which is what the presence of God is. Remember, to walk into the presence of God tainted with sin is immediate eternal death. So eternal life can only be made whenever there is a substitute and we are made perfect so that we can approach God. And that's what we're looking for. Glorification is eternal life. So when the scripture says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, in essence, the scripture is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of what was pictured in the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle itself. He's every element in it. So these are things that are important for us to pay attention to. And so we've worked our way from the inside of the tabernacle, and now we have stepped outward. And we've gone from, you know, when we talk about the tabernacle, we would probably start from the outside and move in. There's only one way in. The first thing is the altar. But when God is explaining it to Moses, very interestingly, he starts in the inside and moves out. He starts with where he is and how he is approaching man or how God wants to come out and be with man to have a relationship with man. Okay? So what we have is the first element that we have outside the tabernacle itself. We find ourselves in the courtyard looking at that first piece. As you would see, coming from our perspective, walking through that gate this is the first thing you would see, and it's called the brazen altar. So let's look at our text again, and let's read the verses and kind of comment briefly on some of the things that we see here. Number one, verse one. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. Okay? So remember, the cubit is, again, about the distance from your elbow to the longest finger that you have. So five cubits, you're talking about one, two, three, four, five. That's about how big it was, okay? So how, how wide it was or how long it was. So you're not talking about this massive structure. I think sometimes in our head, we, have, we picture this big old huge grill, you know, that you know, many animals could be laid upon it. It's really not huge. You know, it's, it's, it's manageable, it's transportable, because remember, everything has to be transported. Let's continue. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, let's stop for a moment. I want to just comment on these horns that it's talking about. So every corner has this horn that comes off of it, and there's a lot of debate on why God instructed them to put these horns on there. Some believe that it's a functional thing. Um, that the animals are tied to this. Well, if you understand Leviticus, then it, it tends to tell us that the animals are sacrificed before they ever come in. Well, some people say, well, this is where the animals might have been hung from to drain the blood because it is in Leviticus instructed upon them that the blood must be removed from the animal, okay, um, before they can eat of it. And that's actually kosher eating as well. Kosher diet would require these things. So some people say, well, that's the functionality of it. Some people say, no, no, it really doesn't have anything to do with that kind of function. It's really more symbolic it's the horns is representative of the animals and the type of animals that are going to be sacrificed on the altar because they have horns. So it's symbolic of the sacrifices that would be made on the altar. 
But I actually think that the scripture is the best way to interpret the need for this. And, and so all of those things may be true. There's nothing that would be anti-biblical about them. But one thing I think that is fascinating is as you move through the rest of scripture, there is these very interesting passages that says if a man is accused of some kind of crime, that one thing he can do to save himself is to run to the temple when they're in Jerusalem and grab hold of the horn of the altar. Doesn't that sound strange? That's what he has to do. And then when he does that, the priest can go and, uh, what's going on? I've been accused of this. I'm not guilty of this. Or I need to be protected. Someone's trying to enact justice upon me. And I haven't had my time to tell my side of the story, whatever it may be. Um, so there's this picture of people who grab hold. There's another passage that says that uh, Jesus is the horn of our salvation. And I think that's a direct relation to this. So somehow these horns represent salvation throughout the rest of Scripture. Whether it's taking hold of it, grabbing hold of it, there's something significant about the connection of these horns with the sacrifice that's being made on it. It's this identification. What happens before they ever walk into the tabernacle, before the animal is ever slain, is that they would put their hands upon the head of the animal. And usually most people say that they would literally grab the horns of the animal. And in doing that, that is a picture of the transfer of guilt and sin to that animal for that animal to become their substitute. And so after the transfer of that, the laying on of the hands, that's when the animal is killed, it becomes a substitute, and then the animal goes on into where the brazen altar is and becomes the sacrifice. So I think those horns are very significant to what we were saying earlier, that this is truly a picture of salvation. Let's continue on verse 3. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. These are all the things needed to process the animal, to, to go ahead with a sacrifice, to um, have it on the grill, to turn it, to move these things, and also to get rid of the ashes that are coming out from the bottom of it. Because this is perpetual. It doesn't say it here, but I want you to keep this in your mind because this comes important in just a minute. The fire of... The brazen altar is a perpetual fire. In other words, when they get ready to leave, they have to keep this fire going, carry it with them, and when they stop again, it's the same exact fire that they had before that ignites it again, and they don't start over again. Part of that is probably um, out of necessity, because it's just not easy to start fires when you don't have the kind of things that we have today. So a lot of times you will find even Abraham, when he's walking up the mountain to um, sacrifice Isaac, he carries with him the fire. Why? Because it's hard to start a fire up on the mountain. You don't have a whole lot of things. So he starts it earlier, probably has a torch of some sort, some kind of rudimentary torch, and he would take that up with him because that becomes the fire for what he's going to use for the sacrifice. Same thing is true here. They continue this fire, which uh, there is actually nothing Nothing in scripture that says this, but ancient Jewish tradition does tell us that, that God actually miraculously started this fire when it first began. In other words, at the institution when the first sacrifice was made, the Jews believe and their history says that God miraculously started the fire. And from that time on, it was the same fire that God miraculously started that became the thing that consumed the sacrifices. Okay, so I want you to keep that in your mind because I'm going to bring that up again in a moment. So the rest of this is all of the utensils that are made that are important for the functioning of the sacrifice. Okay, 
Now look at verse 4. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. That's for transportation. The grate is probably to filter out the ashes as they fall, kind of separate those things. Verse 5. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be through the rings, so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow. That's important because it's going to be transported a lot with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Okay, so that's it. That's a picture of God telling Moses exactly how he wants this to be made. It's this hollow box, if you will, that has a grate, that there will be a fire underneath it. And as the ashes fall, there's a grate that catches the, um, the coals and the ashes that fall from that. So the altar here is very different from everything that we've looked at thus far. Why? Well, we talked about the difference of gold and bronze. This is the first thing that we've seen that God has told Moses to make it of bronze and not to make it with gold or to cover it with gold. And the other thing that I want to bring out is that the altar is the first picture in all of this of God's judgment. And that's what we see here. It's a picture of God's wrath. It's a picture of God's judgment. And and what we want to understand about God's wrath is that God's wrath, number one, is perfect. God's wrath is never this emotional response that's out of control. God's wrath is calculated. God's wrath is patient. Uh, I could point to so many different examples in Scripture, but if you think about Noah, that's probably the greatest example. God says, I'm going to flood the earth. And there was this man that God revealed it to, and he said, oh, Lord, please. He just had a son, and, and he said, please don't let my son experience that wrath. And God said, okay, I I won't pour out my wrath until your son has died. And that son's name was Methuselah, which is the longest living person in all of scripture, which is a picture, I think, of God's grace again, which saying, God saying, I will wait as long as I possibly can before I pour out my wrath. So that's important to understand that God's not this emotional response kind of God. He doesn't sit there and go, oh, that makes me so mad, you know? It's this calculated, thoughtful response. God's wrath is perfect. Here's the other thing. God's wrath is specific. God's wrath is always pointed at something. You ever experience someone else's wrath whenever you aren't even a part of what the wrath was intended for? Uh, How many of y'all are married? Okay. You've experienced this from your spouse at some point or another. You know, somebody made them mad that day, but you're the first person that came in the door that they could yell at. And so you experienced the wrath of another person when it really wasn't even your fault. That's, that's wrath that is not specific, right? That's just general wrath that's just pouring out onto whatever happens to be there in front of it when it pours out. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is specific. It's pointed. God's wrath is always and only poured out on sin. That's it. It's always poured out on sin. Scripture says that one day God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth, but it's very specific to say that God's people are protected from that. God's people will not experience God's wrath. Why? Because it's only poured out on sin and wherever sin is found. He said, well, I am a sinner, but that's the importance of New Testament theology that says you are in Christ. 
because you being in Christ, your sins have been mitigated by the death of Christ. And being in Christ means when God's wrath, just like that death angel that passes over and when it saw the blood of the lamb, it kept going, they were covered. So we being in Christ are covered. So when Christ, when God comes to us and God's wrath passes over, it looks and sees Jesus and says, perfection. No reason for wrath to be poured out here, and it moves on until it can find sin. Whereas if we are not in Christ, then God's wrath is poured out on us, not because he hates us, but because God's wrath is always going to be poured out on sin and wherever sin is found. And if that sin is found in us, then God's wrath will be poured out on us. You see, that's the importance of understanding God's wrath. The other thing I want to say is God's wrath is tragic. It's tragic because there's a finality to it. And not only does it point to this ultimate end of eternal death, the eternal part of that being the key, that it's a death that never ends. Can you imagine that kind of feeling? That kind of perpetual existence, never realizing or knowing or having fulfilled in you the reason you were created? Eternal death is not so much about the lake of fire and the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Really, if you understand scripture, what it's pointing towards is you're separated from God. And every human was created to have a relationship with God. And so for eternity, you never experience what you were created for. And you experience this in the scripture points to the fact that it's it's in isolation. I mean, yes, there's many people who will end up in hell, but the way the scripture paints it is they're unaware of each other. It's not like this community of like, well, we partied it up there, might as well party up down. No, you're not aware of that. There's not community because community belongs to the people of God. There isn't purpose because purpose only can be found in a relationship with God. So, All of that is lost when we are separated. That's the eternal. And that's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic when the wrath of God is poured out because not only is it permanent, it's tragic because it's a part of God's creation that never gets to realize what it was created for. And that, my friends, is tragic. That's the tragedy of our human existence outside of God. It's the tragedy of sin, but it's the beauty of salvation. Now, there's one thing that I want to make clear just as a point of reference and and just kind of a point. God has never sent anybody to hell. God's never done. I have people that are like, God's going to send them to hell one day. No, God's never sent anybody to hell. It's never happened. Because to be sent somewhere means that you go there because someone made you go there. But what scripture says is that people go to hell all the time. Why? What's the difference in going and being sent? Going, when you go somewhere, you go by the choices that you make. When you leave here today, you're going to make a choice about where you're going. I'm not sending you anywhere. I'm not saying, everyone, you must go down to the ox and get a burger for lunch. I mean, that would be sent. Like, you don't have an option. You, that's where you got to go have lunch today, okay? That's being sent somewhere. But you're not. You're all going to leave this place, and you are, because we have to lock the doors. Uh, but you're going to leave this place, and you're going to go somewhere. And you're going to go somewhere because of choices that you make. People go to hell all the time 
No one's ever sent to hell. For you to go to hell, you have to climb over the bleeding body of Jesus. You have to ignore every way that God has made for you to be redeemed from that destination. And you have to intentionally keep rebelling and keep moving and keep ignoring and keep setting aside to pursue that rebellion. That's how people end up in hell. Now, the altar also was a place of salvation. It was a place of salvation for them, even though we think of it theoretically as pointing to the gospel. It was also a place they literally, even in that day and time, thought of as a place of salvation. I'm going to give you two really big words, theological words, seminary-type words, okay? It's expiation and propitiation. Okay? I know those are like, well, what does that mean? Well, expiation, that actually makes a lot of sense. Expiation is the process of making amends for wrongdoing. Okay, so many of them saw the altar as the expiation of their sins. It was making amends for the wrongs that they did. And how was that done? Through an innocent sacrifice substitute. Okay, so this substitute, took, <clears throat> excuse me, this substitute took the punishment that was intended for the one who was coming to worship. Okay? The other thing is propitiation. Now these are different because propitiation is the other perspective. It's the satisfaction, is a, to me, is the best word to understand propitiation. It is God being satisfied with the offering or the sacrifice that has been presented. Does that make sense? So this is a picture of, number one, one comes and offers amends by offering the sacrifice. And if the sacrifice is done properly, that becomes propitiation, which is God being satisfied with this offering, okay? So that's what we see at the very beginning. That's the way they thought about it. <clears throat> and the reason they thought about this was so important is because God hates sin, and they knew that. God, they knew God hates sin. All of Scripture points to the fact that God hates sin because sin is a mistrust of God. It's a rebellion against him. And, and, and remember when I told you earlier that the flames underneath the altar were, were perpetual? The reason I want you to hear that and make note of that is because later on when you get in a little deeper into scripture both in the old testament and in the new especially in the book of revelation it says that the fires of hell are also perpetual so when we make that connection it seems like the bronze altar is a picture of hell itself where flames are constantly consuming and so again that's the picture of Whenever we are thrown into the lake of fire because of our disobedience and we never accept that sacrifice of Christ and we, we end up in our rebellion, we are, in essence, becoming the sacrifice. There is no substitute for us. Okay, so again, there's a great theology in the connection of those two things. Now, the whole premise of sacrifice is that the death of the innocent is accepted as a substitute for the guilty so that the guilty can then, in turn, escape the wrath of God and live... But not only live, but, but this person is actually made perfect in a way. Think about this. I want to go to another passage in Leviticus. Again, remember, Leviticus follows Exodus, and it's a further explanation of what happens at this altar and what happens in the tabernacle as this worship of God. Okay? Verse 3 of Leviticus chapter 1, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. 
He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. So there's a picture of acceptance, right? He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, like we talked about earlier, probably grabbing hold of the horns, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull, what does it say? Before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So notice what we have here. Number one, this whole process of bringing a bull or bringing a sacrifice has several elements to it. The first element is this. It's an element of faith. Number one, you have to have faith that this whole process that you're participating in is what God intends for salvation to bring. You know, I I run into people all the time that come up with their own theology. I know that you do too. Especially people who are like, you know what, the golf course is my sanctuary. You know, I don't really attend church because there's so many hypocrites there, which I think is funny to use hypocrisy as a reason that you don't go to church. Isn't that the greatest hypocrite that could possibly exist? Anyway, that's a whole nother soapbox. But um, they say things like, well, you know, I like to be out, because I'm out in the greatest cathedral, I'm out worshiping. But the scripture doesn't say, go find a great cathedral on your own and worship God. It says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, because this was God's intention. So as you come here, yes, we all know that we could be somewhere else this morning. Some of us could be sleeping in, some of us could be out fishing, some of us could be out shopping, some of us could be out doing things in our yard. But we've come here, we've set aside this time. Why? Because we believe in faith that somehow even maybe just a small pivot God is going to do something in us or he's going to uh, rectify something in our life or he's going to remind us of a truth or he's going to encourage us in some way we set this aside because we believe that this is what God intended for us we believe it and we act in faith the second thing is it's an element of participation notice that the worshiper participates in the sacrifice He doesn't just bring the animal over to the priest and say, all right, we good here? No, he has to actually kill the animal himself. So there is this participation. But notice there's also an element of cooperation. The priest assists him in the furthering of that. So yes, he kills the animal, but the priest comes alongside and helps him to uh, dismember the animal in the way God prescribed, to wash the animal, to care for all the parts in the way that God intended for this process to happen. And so there is this participation of others. And not only that, there is this element of intercession. There comes a point in this whole process where Aaron and his sons, in other words, the high priest and the other priest, take over. They're the only ones that ever approach the altar. They're the only ones that offer the sacrifice. Do you see that beauty? There there is intentionality in that. I, by faith, believe that this is the process that God has designed. I cooperate with others in this process. I participate in it myself, but yet I need an intercessor. I need someone to go between me and God to offer this sacrifice on my behalf. All of that happens at the altar. All of that is a foreshadowing of what happens in the New Testament, in salvation, in the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10 I know we've read these ad nauseum, going back to Hebrews 9, 10, 11, but I'm telling you, it's important for us to see the connection here, why what is written in the book of Hebrews is so important for us to understand as Christians post-crossed resurrection. 
He says in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what he's, uh, what he's actually putting out there and substantiating is that there is a truth that cannot be denied, and that is that these sacrifices never made anybody perfect. Yes, they mitigated their sins for a time, but all of these had to be repeated over and over again. Even the Day of Atonement was every single year. Why? Because the blood of goats and sheep can never truly be a perfect substitute for man. He continues in verse 2, Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So he's saying that if this was good enough to take care of our guilt, if this was good enough to take care of our sins, then why did they have to keep coming back? Because they continually felt and understood that their sins were separating them from God. That even though they went to the altar, they never actually were able to go into the holy place or not even thought of the fact that they could walk into the holy of holies. They are perpetually until something further happens kept on the outside they get close there's a picture but it's not perfection so this process of sacrifice pointed to perfection but it never made anybody perfect that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that all of this was a foreshadowing of what God intended to do. None of these sacrifices made anybody perfect, but it pointed to perfection. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3. Let's continue. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So every time they come to the temple, they're reminded of the death that has to take place because of their sins. Every time they come to the temple and they see that white fence, they are reminded that God is holy and they are not. Every time they come, they are reminded that they fall short of the glory of God. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, here's the connection, when Christ came into the world, he said, Jesus himself, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So Jesus even admits when he comes into the world, sacrifice and offerings, those are not things that are going to make anyone whole. Those are a foreshadowing of my own body that you have sent, the Son of God in flesh. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. God does not find pleasure in death. It's necessary. God doesn't find pleasure in it. God finds pleasure in faith. God finds pleasure in trust. God finds pleasure in obedience. The death is because those other things don't exist in us. Then I said, verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, in the scroll of the book. So this is the fulfillment of the shadows of things to come. The writer of Hebrews is saying all of these things that we find in the tabernacle, this is Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is flesh and bone, but yet God resides in him. He's 100% human, but 100% God at the same time, just like the tabernacle is a picture of. And he comes as the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. He comes with not the blood of goats or animals like the high priest had to. He comes with his own blood. 
Look at verse 11 in chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sat down not because he was tired, because he was finished. Do you know we never have a picture in the Old Testament of a high priest sitting down? Why? Because the high priest's job's never done. There's always another sacrifice. There's always another worshiper. There's always someone who's coming back for the second, third, fourth, 14,000th time to have their sins mitigated. Jesus sits down at the right hand of the throne of God because he's the perfect high priest, because his sacrifice was perfect, because his blood was perfect, and there needs to be no repetition of that sacrifice because of its perfection. Verse 14, this is the key. For by a single offering, he has, what's the next word? Perfected. Perfected. Now watch how the rest of it develops. For all time, those who are, what's the last two words? Being. Do you see the almost contradiction of terms there, but yet it's a glorious theological truth? You have been perfected through the blood of Jesus, but you're still walking through the process of being sanctified. Why is that a glorious truth? Because as I continue to battle sin in my life, it is not a life and death battle anymore. Before, it was either perfection or it was eternal separation. But now as I fight these sins in my life and I war against these temptations, I don't war against them so that I can be forgiven of them. I've already been forgiven. I war against them to be rid of them, to have them not in my way anymore to have them not clouding my understanding of who God is and my relationship with him and my trust with him and my connection to him. I, I keep fighting these sins, but I'm not fighting them to be forgiven of them. I'm fighting them to be rid of them. That's how Jesus changed our fight against sin. That's why we are perfect because all of our sins have already been taken care of, but yet we're still being sanctified we're still working through the process of not practicing sin, learning to be more like who our sacrifice is. Perfection, being sanctified. I love the connection there. Now, we find sacrifice throughout Scripture. We find it in creation when God had to kill animals to cover Adam and Eve. We find Abel making sacrifices before the Lord. We see Noah making a sacrifice as soon as he gets off the ark. We see even the patriarch Job making a sacrifice on behalf of his children, serving almost like a priest, an intermediary. We see Abraham making several sacrifices to God. We see Jacob Abraham's grandson making sacrifice to the Lord. We see Moses here making sacrifices even before this part of, of, of um, what we see in Exodus and God's plan and provision through the tabernacle. Even you know, with a Passover lamb, we see a sacrifice. And obviously, all of this points to God's intention for us to understand the cost and consequences of sin. We see the priest offering sacrifices, the prophets offering sacrifices, and in the gospel, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice. 
Now, here's one thing I want to end on, and that is that we have to understand sacrifice as worship. Here's what I want to say. There is a way of interpreting Scripture that is very important for all of us to realize. There's a law when it comes to studying Scripture that is an important law. It's called the law of first mention. So what that means is the first time any kind of concept is mentioned in Scripture, that is the truth, and from that point on, that concept is built upon. It's not replaced, it's built upon, because that is truth. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. This is where Abraham, after his long journey in his life of learning to trust God, he's been growing and growing, made a ton of mistakes, but now he's coming to this place where he's seen the miracle child born, and he's seeing God's faithfulness. He's beginning to understand that this is more about God than it is him. But then God makes this demand of him to take his son, his only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And, and as Abraham is contemplating this, the scripture never gives us a picture that he ever hesitated, which tells us how much he's grown in his faith. So he takes his son, he puts the wood on his back, he makes his son carry the wood as, for the sacrifice that he's going to become. Now again, I want you to remember that most theologians say that Isaac, is an, he's a man at this point. He's not like this little boy. He's a man. He's probably, some even estimate that he's exactly the age of Jesus when he does this, around 30, 33 years old. Um, so anyway, Abraham heads up the mountain with him, and there's this very interesting verse that we find in Exodus chapter 22, I mean, Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, the entourage that was traveling with him, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, Isaac, will go over there and, what does the word say? What? Do you know that's the first time the word worship ever shows up in scripture. Never mentions worship in creation. Never mentions worship with the story of Adam and Eve. It never says that Noah worshiped God when he came off of the ark. The word worship is never mentioned until this point in the book of Genesis. Look what it says. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's faith. Abraham knows that God's called him to sacrifices, but in Abraham's mind, somehow, God's not going to let this boy die. He's either going to resurrect him from the dead, or I don't know how God's going to do it, but I just know this is what God told me he's going to do, but I know I'm also going to be faithful to what God's asked me to do. Somehow, me and the boy both will return to you, because this is what God has said he's going to give me generations from. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to do it. And notice that's the first time the word worship ever shows up. And I want you to pay attention. There were no rows of chairs or pews there. There was no stage. There was no preacher. There was no choir. There were no worship songs with, with the words on the screen or a little hymnal everybody opened up. Everything that we tend to think of as worship was not present there the first time the word worship was used. I'll tell you what was present. Faith and sacrifice. Which is why the scripture says over and over again, that's what I desire. Obedience. I desire faith. I desire to trust. You know, yeah, that's great that you come in and sing these songs, but do you believe what you're singing? That's what I'm really concerned about. You, you say these things that you sing off the screen, but do you walk out there and live them? Do you believe them to the point that it is transforming the way that you relate to me and relate to the world around you and especially the material possessions that are out there or that you have? Has it changed you? Worship is always connected to sacrifice. 
So I have two questions I want to leave you with today before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, do you take sin as seriously as God does? God takes sin so seriously that he said, I am willing to become the sacrifice for you, to bleed the blood, to take the mutilation, to take the abuse, so that you will not experience eternal death, but will have a way to eternal life. Do you think about that every time the temptation of sin comes? Or is your approach to sin, listen to this, it's going to hurt, similar to your approach to worship? I don't like that song. I don't like that style of music. I don't like that preacher. I don't like how long it is. I don't like how short it is. I don't like that environment. I don't like being in that kind of building. I don't like having traveled that far. I don't like it being that close. I don't like having all those activities. Is worship more about what fits you? Or is worship really more about what fits? See, I think we've missed it here. I think we've got our view of God and worship clouded here. Because the first time the word worship shows up, it's all about obedience. And it's an obedience that's uncomfortable. It's an obedience that they didn't even completely understand. But yet he knew God had called him to something. Therefore, he walked obediently in that. Are you walking in that kind of obedience? Because you are so connected to God that you are clear-minded to hear him and what he's calling you to do. And your faith has grown to the point that you trust him even when you don't understand the circumstances of your life. But you trust him. Why? Because you know him. And let me just tell you something. You'll never trust someone you don't know. Second thing is this. Is your worship more about what pleases you or what pleases God? Let's pray. Lord, in this time, as we celebrate your supper, the thing that reminds us of the sacrifice that you became You are the high priest that goes on our behalf. You are the one that have made us holy and right and perfect. You are the one that leads us through the process of sanctification through the holy place. And you are the one that has opened up the holy of holies to us so that we can go boldly before the throne of God with our petitions, with our request, to to know the heart of God and to be known by him, to grow in that relationship, to grow in our trust and our understanding. And all of that, could only happen if a sacrifice was made first. You became that sacrifice. Thank you. May that become very, very real to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.